1981, the movie Clash of the Titans came out, and it depicted on the big screen the Greek myth of Perseus, and it famously featured this claymation Medusa who emerges from the shadows with snakes writhing out of her head. It's kind of a terrifying sight. Now, we'd probably laugh today at the outdated special effects of the 80s, but for the time, Clash of the Titans captured the imaginations of audiences worldwide because this myth highlighted timeless truths, timeless virtues of courage, hope, and wisdom. And whether or not the events actually occurred didn't really matter. What mattered was that the truth was shining through these stories. But that's not what we're talking about when it comes to Jesus. And when the Apostle Peter refers to the events of the transfiguration, it sounds mythical. Jesus revealing his divinity and glory, and he's glowing on top of a mountain. But Peter makes it very clear in his second letter that this is not a myth. This is not some clever story to expose a timeless truth. This is an eyewitness account of an historical event in which Jesus Christ reveals his glory. And this divine glory serves to confirm the prophecies of the Old Testament as the very words of God. So the gospel, the good news, comes to us as a message about God's redemption in real space and time. It's not a myth. It's not an abstract idea, but a concrete historical reality. It's not merely a gathering of principles, but our hope rests in a living person. This is Understanding Second Peter. In the last episode, we looked at the Apostle Peter's urgent reminder to the church to remember that divine power has been granted to them, and that divine power enables them to partake of the divine nature, which is another way of saying to be conformed to the image of Christ, to become godly. God's power transforms us, and he does that as we await his promised return. He has given us these great and very precious promises, the promises of the resurrection life, the promises of life in God's kingdom, and the promise that Jesus Christ will come and bring our final deliverance from death at his second coming. But some in the early church are doubting the return of Christ. They're wondering, well, he's ascended. It's been about 30 years since that happened. Why hasn't he returned? And there's a sinful justification behind this. If Jesus isn't coming back to judge the living and the dead, why not indulge in sinful passions, as we're going to learn about later on in 2 Peter? But Peter is very firm in his correction of this false teaching. And he's firm in three ways. First, he appeals to the transfiguration of Jesus Christ as a testimony to the promise of God. Second, he appeals to the divine origin of the prophetic word. And finally, he assures that God will in fact judge the living and the dead, especially those who spread false teaching. So let's look at that first section in which Peter recounts his eyewitness testimony of the transfiguration, starting in verse 16 of chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter assures the church that his testimony rings true because of his eyewitness encounter with the transfigured Christ. If you look, for example, in Matthew chapter 17 with the transfiguration account, 
Uh, Peter is on a mountain. He sees Moses and Elijah talking with Christ. Christ is transfigured. His face is glowing. And then the cloud of God's presence, the Father is speaking and affirming that this is the Son of God. And in the transfiguration, Jesus provides a glimpse of his state of exaltation that will occur after his death. And for a brief moment, he pulls back the veil and reveals his divine glory as the Son of Man and as the heir of David's throne, as the Messiah. In Psalm 2, God promises that his son, the king, will judge the nations and possess the earth. And the transfiguration is a foretaste of this future reality, a future reality in which Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead and to inherit the fullness of his kingdom. And this final hope brings about the resurrection of believers, the consummation of the kingdom, and the hope that animates the pursuit of holiness in the present. Now, we're going to see later that some false teachers are denying the promise of Christ's return. And they're insinuating that history is just going to continue on as it always has. And Peter rebukes this false teaching by saying the transfiguration is the preview, the down payment of sorts, of Christ's return in glory. That if God was faithful to show Christ's divinity on the mountain, then he's going to be faithful to show Christ's divinity when he returns. That God's promises will come to their completion. And what you see in the Old Testament is that Jesus, in his first coming, fulfills partially the Old Testament promises. But there are future promises yet to be fulfilled. But it shows us that if God is, is faithful enough to partially fulfill his promises, then the latter half is sure to come. And the transfiguration, again, is that partial fulfillment, a way of God assuring the disciples that everything that was promised is going to be confirmed in Jesus Christ. Now, these false teachers in the church that Peter is concerned about are saying that Peter is speaking myths. The apostles are just telling stories. But Peter cites his own eyewitness testimony and says, it's not a myth. I'm telling you what I saw. We saw the Lord in his power, in his divinity. And the prophecies of Christ are important because they come not from man's will, but God's. And so Peter is making an argument now for the inspiration of Scripture. That these aren't things that people just drum up to tell stories, but these are actual factual accounts. And that the factual account of the transfiguration proves that the prophecies that the prophets of old spoke of when they refer to the Messiah are in fact true, are in fact from divine origin. And that's the next little section in verses 19 to 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here Peter gives us insight into the divine origin of the prophetic word. The prophecies do not come from man's will or imagination, sometimes translated as interpretation, like the false prophets, but rather directly from God. And this is where we get the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. It means that the words of Scripture come from the very mouth of God. They spirate out of his mouth. They are God-breathed. When we talk about inspiration, we don't just mean someone being inspired. We mean that God's very words are being spoken in the words of the scriptures. But notice there's a harmony between human agency and divine agency. The agency of the spirit does not contradict the agency of man. 
men did in fact write. They wrote from their knowledge, from their temperament, from their personal theological reflections, from their personal experience. And the Spirit preserved them from error and ensured that the words that they wrote were the words that he intended. In other words, the Spirit is the divine origin of these words, but it works through the vessels of these human authors. So it's not as though the Apostle Paul just blacked out then woke up and found in front of him the completed book of Romans. You know, or it's not as though it was dictated to him, you know, like somebody walking around and he's on a typewriter typing out every word that God says, but rather through an organic process, God has set apart the authors of scripture by his spirit, utilizing their experience, their education, their reflections as his instruments by which he composes the word of God. So, so God's action in composing the scriptures and man's action are aligned. But God is the ultimate origin of these words. And because God is the ultimate origin of these words, these words are faithful, they're infallible, they have no error, and they are true. They are a reliable guide. And that's important when you're fending off false teaching. In effect, Peter is saying, look, the prophecies of Christ, and really, by extension, the words that Peter is writing, are true words because they are God's words. And that's in contrast to the man-made words of the false teachers who are denying the testimony of the Old Testament. Now, note the implication that Peter draws. If the transfiguration confirms the Old Testament prophecies, then we ought to pay attention to those Old Testament words. They serve as a light that shines in the darkness. There's a strong sense of the divine inspiration of the Word of God. The Old Testament is not just background filler information and the real stuff is the stuff that Jesus said. But here he says the Holy Spirit composed the words of the Old Testament. And there's a cohesion that Jesus Christ is merely fulfilling everything that God has promised. And so this is a lamp that shines in the darkness. They, they serve as a guide. Now, we don't appreciate this in our modern society with electricity 24-7, but back then, the night was a time of great danger and uncertainty. If you're traveling through the night, you run the risk of getting you know, robbed by bandits or attacked by wild animals or even evil spirits. And a lamp served as your only security to navigate until the morning sun rises, until the dawn comes. And Peter's using this imagery of light and a lamp and the dawn to depict our relationship with the word of God. It is a lamp in this dark age that lights the path before us until the dawn appears, when the morning star rises. Morning star refers probably to Venus. And this refers to the return of Christ when his kingdom of light brings about a new creation. So right now we're in a time in which the world is dark, right? But we have the word, the scriptures as our light that lights the path forward. But we are waiting for that final day when the dawn, the sun will come up and new creation will dawn in its fullness. And the morning star, I think referring to Jesus, using the imagery of Venus, the morning star and all that stuff, combining it and saying that Jesus, when he returns, is going to be the one who now we see face to face. We don't, we don't need the scriptures because we see the revelation of Jesus Christ before us. But until then, the scripture is our guide as we live in this in-between space between the first and the second coming of Christ. But along the way, through the night, there are going to be bandits, these false teachers that seek to throw us off the path. And Peter has strong words for them in the first three verses of chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, 
who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So here comes a warning that threats are going to come from within the church, and those threats will come in the form of destructive heresies. If you remember back in 1 Peter, a lot of the focus was on external threats, external pressures on the church, people maligning you, people mocking you, people insulting you for the name of Christ. But 2 Peter focuses on the internal threats, the internal divisions. False teachers will rise from among you, from among your ranks. And they're motivated by the flesh, and they seduce people with false words. It says that they do this by following their sensuality, and they blaspheme the truth. This idea of being led by their evil passions, that's what sensuality is. And later on, we, we learn about greed as a motivation. They're greedy for money. They have eyes of adultery. They're insatiable for sin, we learn later on. So false teaching is motivated by this, this evil uh, intent. False teaching and false living are very often combined. And they're very smooth with their speech, right? They exploit people, but they're very cunning. They're not coming in saying, believe this heresy, but they're being, quote unquote, reasonable. And they're saying, the Lord isn't coming back. Things are going to be the way they are. Isn't it evident before you? Isn't it evident that these words that Peter is saying are myths? I mean, aren't you sophisticated? Don't you understand the way that reality is? I mean, they're using very smooth talk. And that's what's so deadly about false teaching. It comes to us often with half-truths. But without the full truth, it's false, right? But the promise of Christ's return, which is a doctrine the false teachers appear to deny, is going to bring them judgment. Peter says, don't listen to them. They're swaying you off the path. Don't be drawn away from the path of righteousness. Don't be drawn away from your hope by these false teachers because judgment is coming for them. These false teachers may profess faith, but they don't actually possess it. And some commentators note that the Greek word for master here is unique. So it's probably not talking about master in a salvific sense, but in professing, saying Jesus is our Lord, but they don't truly follow him. They don't actually know him. And it says that they will bring upon themselves a swift destruction. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So the irony here is he's saying they're judging or rather they're denying the judgment of God and the return of Christ. And in denying that judgment, they themselves are going to bring judgment upon themselves. And so Peter's saying, don't play around with this false teaching. Christ will return and he will hold them to account for their false words, for their blasphemy. And we must be vigilant against false teaching in our day, especially when key doctrines are denied. Heresy is a huge deal. Now, heresy here could refer to internal divisions, just within the group of, of, of believers. You can see that in First and Second Corinthians where there are different factions. Or it can refer to just straight up false doctrines, the denial of the, of the body of Christ being a physical human body, a denial of uh, the return of Christ. These are some of the early heresies that are going to spread. And you're going to see throughout the history of the church, heresies appear to reveal who the true church is. And the church in response to heresies is able to clarify its orthodox doctrine. But the authority of the scriptures must be recognized not merely in theory, but in practice. And he's saying you got to look beyond this false teaching to the false hearts behind it. That oftentimes there's evil motivation behind these heresies. And we have to have a, a, a heart that pays diligent attention to the word because it's a light. It's a lamp that helps us 
expose the darkness. It helps us understand what is truth and separate ourselves from those who are saying false things. So Peter in the first century points back to the word for the health of the church. And that same admonition remains today. We would do well to pay attention to the word of God in the 21st century especially as more and more heresies arise in different areas of the Christian life. We have to be vigilant, not to be swayed off the path, but to follow the lamp and to wait until the hope of the morning, the hope of the dawn comes. Mm-hmm.